true story. One day at work, my cell phone buzzed with a call from a male VP I worked with. I took the call, Obs, know the guy, and I have no idea even now what the first words out of his mouth were, but I remember my intense and immediate bodily reactions. My heart started racing, I was flushed with heat, and I broke out in a sweat, and for the life of me, I could not sit still. Without even thinking, I mean, it was truly impulsive, I started pacing with a phone glued to my ear. And I was so agitated, I just left the office. I started fast walking laps around the building, all while getting chewed out by this guy. I've always told this story as a story where dude yelled for 20 minutes, but thinking back about it, it could have been five minutes or 11 or maybe even 30. I mean, I don't know. It just felt eternal. He yelled and yelled and yelled and yelled and yelled some more. I just walked and listened, my heart racing, my stomach churning, while he poured his anger all over me. When he was done, (laughs) I asked if I could share what I was thinking. He said no and hung up. I was really shaken by this. And I know I looked shaken because when I went back to the office, people kept asking, hey, are you okay? Yeah, sure. I was okay. And also, I was so not okay. Today, sitting here, I have very clear memories of how I felt for those 20 or so minutes, but I have no idea what he said. I have a vague recollection of the general situation that had him so worked up, but literally, I don't remember a single word he said except his super emphatic no before hanging up on me. Still, I've told this story a lot. For a while, it was a favorite answer to that interview question, tell us about a time when you had to deal with a difficult situation. But today, I want to talk about how the key thing I learned from that conversation, the key thing I thought I learned is actually 100% wrong. When I think back to that phone call, I think of the famous quote from Maya Angelou. She says, I've learned that people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. And I'm like totally down with that 100% because what I remember about this particular VP, as honestly I remember about every leader I've ever worked with, is how he made me feel. Except that's the lie. That VP, that angry white guy dressing me down, He didn't make me feel anything. So in today's episode, we're going to unpack that a bit by exploring the neuroscience of conversations. Welcome to episode 45. Hey there, I'm Carol Shabrias, and I walked away from a 25-year career as a higher ed exec so that I could help you. I've had great bosses and shitty ones. I've been a good boss, and to be honest, probably a shitty one. I've learned a lot along the way, and now I share everything I've learned to help you be the kind of leader you've always wanted to follow. Each week, I share practical advice and research-based strategies to help make your job easier. Whether you're a seasoned faculty member, a new department chair, stepping into a new role on the cabinet, or just exploring your options and next steps, I'm here to help you align your professional aspirations, your personal values, and the leadership of your dreams. I'm so excited you're here. Thanks for listening to the Uplift Podcast. (music) 
I want to contrast that story with another one. This story isn't mine, and I'm probably going to get some details wrong, but it's my memory of something I read in one of my favorite parenting books of all time, which is called How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk. It's old now. It's a classic, but I'll drop a link to it in the show notes in case you're curious. Somewhere in that book is the story of a dad whose daughter was really upset and she was in her room isolated and angry. So the dad goes in and instead of pushing her to talk, instead of making her engage, he just lay down on the floor next to her bed. He was just there, present with her and her emotions. And eventually she was ready to talk and her dad was right there. And because they hadn't been pushing each other's buttons in a tense conversation, when she was ready, she was able to be open and to share. And they had the conversation that helped them both. If I had to boil down this book's parenting advice, I'd boil it down to this. As a parent, your first job is to shut up. Your second job is to interrupt your own impulses so that when you do talk or when you do act, you're not under the influence of your revved up, ready to fight nervous system. And if you've already remembered to shut up, then it's easier to interrupt your impulses because you're not giving into them in the first place. This is hard and by no means am I perfect at it. I do try to practice this at work and in general, I'd say it's definitely worth your time to practice. Listen more than you talk. Try not to lash out instinctively or reactively and sit quietly with people when they're working something out. That's a 180 from the first story where a male leader lost his cool and went off the rails and caused harm. But it's what I've learned from that second story that's made me realize I've been telling the first story wrong all this time. And the difference comes down to our nervous systems. In preparation for the upcoming workshop I'm leading with Debbie Okerlund called Conversations That Count, I've been revisiting Judith Glazier's work on conversational intelligence. And I'll drop a link to her book and also to her website in the show notes as well. Judith Glazier, who passed away in 2018, called herself an organizational anthropologist, which is a phrase I love. She earned various degrees at Temple, Drexel, and Harvard. She was a founding member of the Harvard Coaching Institute. She adjuncted for a while at Wharton, and she founded Benchmark Communications, which was a consulting firm that worked with companies like Clairol and Citibank and IBM and others like that. In her book, Conversational Intelligence, Glazer talks about the neuroscience of conversations, and she draws connections between the different parts and functions of the brain and how they're stimulated during conversational exchanges. She starts with the premise that conversations create electrical currents generated in the brain. When we're in a fear state, our conversations are shaped by the neurochemistry of fear, which means our amygdala is in overdrive as we frantically try to figure out how to protect ourselves. Right? That's like our brain's biggest job is to protect us. Once the amygdala has kicked in, that means we are primed to come up with defensive solutions to whatever the problem is we're facing whatever the problem is in the conversation. Those defensive solutions are there to remove you from the thing you're perceiving as a threat. Alternatively, we can have conversations from a state of trust. And in these conversations, the prefrontal cortex is what's enabled, and it can override the amygdala to get our brains out of reactive mode and into executive functioning, where we can be creative and problem solve and be generative. But even when we're in good conversations, when we're kind of activated in the prefrontal cortex, if we perceive a threat, the amygdala leaps to our defense. It interrupts what's happening in that conversation, and the amygdala then takes over. There's something more at work here, though. We perceive threats, or we experience trust, 
because those are the stories we're telling ourselves. So in that moment, the only thing that's really happening is your body is flooded with chemicals and hormones. But our brains, which are so good at piecing things together so we can make sense of them, our brains get busy trying to make sense out of everything that's happening, all the aspects of the conversation, all the physiological responses, and your brain turns all of that into a story. So when that veep called me, I picked up the phone expecting to have a conversation with someone I worked closely with. No big deal, right? My prefrontal cortex is primed. But when he launched into attack mode and my heart started racing and I broke out in a sweat and I couldn't sit still, I interpret that as danger. I had those physiological sensations and my brain said, oh, danger, danger. And I responded accordingly. I'm going to come back to that, why that was my response. I'll come back to that later in the episode. But for now, let's just say that's how I responded. So my brain is taking in all the data, the yelling man, my racing heart. And it's like, Carol, Carol, danger, danger. So let's pause for a moment here and think about what we talked about last week with crucial conversations and that storytelling framework. We observe something, we see it or we hear it. Our brains immediately try to make sense of it by turning it into a coherent narrative, into a story we can understand. That story triggers an emotional response and our emotions drive us to act. Well, now if we layer in what Glazer tells us, we can add a little bit of nuance. We still observe something, right? We see something or we hear something and we have a bodily reaction to what we observe. Maybe we freak out, maybe we brush it off, maybe it doesn't register. No matter how we respond, something hormonal and chemical is happening and all of that bodily response is part of the data our brain uses to construct its narrative about what we're seeing or hearing. In other words, those sensations are just things happening in our body and it's our brain that makes meaning out of them. The way we make sense out of our hormones and our chemicals informs the story we tell ourselves about what's happening. So let's think back to crucial conversations where part of your job in getting clear about your story and getting clear that it's your story and not some universal capital T truth, that involves stepping aside to account for how your brain is turning sensations into a story that shapes your emotions, which then drive you to actions. So let's say your emotion is anger and you want to act out in anger. Anger isn't actually what's happening in your body. What's happening in your body is some kind of chemical response. And anger is how you are making sense of all those responses. Do you remember episode 28 when we talked to Sarah Moore Noakes and Shelley Roeder and they talked about the neuroscientist Lisa Feldman Barrett? She has a nice way of making this understandable. So here's an example she gives, and this isn't a TED Talk. I'll drop this in the show notes as well. So let's say you're headed into some competitive thing and your stomach is fluttering. You can perceive those butterflies as nerves and tell yourself that those nerves mean you're not ready. And so your flight impulse kicks in. Or you can perceive those butterflies as excitement and tell yourself that your body is amping up, preparing you with the energy you need to slay. Same chemicals, same physical sensation, totally different story, very different results. So as you're thinking about those crucial conversations at work and you're preparing yourself by using the storytelling framework, see if you can layer in a bit of neuroscience. Even if it's just to remember that the story you're telling yourself influences how you perceive your bodily sensations. The names you're giving to your emotions in a conversation are coming from your brain's habits, your prior experiences, the stories your brain knows has worked in the past. But you can change that. You can literally change that by naming those emotions differently. You can think you're nervous and unprepared, or you can think you're amped up and ready to slay. 
You'll go somewhere totally different depending on what you decide to do with those feelings. And so Lisa Feldman Barrett puts it this way, emotions that seem to happen to you are actually made by you. And that's where I've been getting my story about my VP colleague wrong. I have always framed that story as a time when I stayed calm amid chaos. He made me feel some way and I was a good girl, right? I listened, I didn't interrupt, I asked for permission to speak. And that's a really useful story for me to have because it feeds into all the work I've been doing on learning how to have difficult conversations and work with leaders. And so some of that's true. What's also true is that when I was a kid, I lived in a home where there was a lot of anger and yelling. And when the adults started yelling, someone usually ended up getting physically hurt. So I learned as a small kid to be still and quiet and to silently accept whatever the angry adults were doing because that was literally the best way to protect myself. So I'm a little kid. I had those sensations. I turned those sensations into emotions that I named. And that's the story my brain is familiar with. And now I can see that story at work. My phone rings. I pick it up. An adult starts yelling at me. My body is flooded with chemicals. And my brain was like, oh, hey, yeah, we know this. We've been here. This is danger. You should just be a quiet, good girl because that's what's always worked for you in the past. That VP, he didn't make me feel anything. My brain told itself an old familiar story in part because as much as that old familiar story sucks, it's familiar, which helps remove the threat. I made my emotions based on my brain's habits. Okay, so obviously I should probably go process that a bit, but I'll do that off record so you don't have to listen. But I do want to take that concept and I want to go back to layering trust into our challenging conversations. In Glazer's book, she talks a lot about trust. And in fact, her book focuses specifically on how to use neurochemistry to establish trust in conversations. So distrust, she tells us, is signaled through the amygdala, that part of the brain where we process threats. Trust is signaled through the prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain where we process credibility and intentions. So the presence or absence of trust in a conversation is actually connected to your neural processing. When there's distrust in a conversation, you perceive threat. When there's trust in a conversation, you perceive credibility. It's true for you. It's true for your colleagues. Once you know that, you can begin to sharpen your conversational intelligence. Glazer describes conversational intelligence as the ability to observe that we're having bodily sensations, identify which parts of our brains are being triggered, and therefore what kinds of stories we're telling ourselves, and then pause over that story so we slow down to make sense of the situation. So conversational intelligence for Glazer is having the ability to transform fear into trust during conversations which is not what I did on that phone call, certainly not what my angry colleague did on that phone call. So if you've been here with me for a while, and if you listen to the stories I tell, you know how deeply I care about trust and team building and psychological safety. What I love about Glazer's work in neuroscience is she helps us understand it's not just woo-woo talk about feel-good relationships. It's literally about our bodies. It's literally about what's happening chemically and neurologically when conversations happen. And so excuse me while I step on my soapbox again, you can see why I say that you can't solve people problems with incentives. I love ice cream, but no number of ice cream socials is ever going to warm me up to a leader I don't trust. That rush of oxytocin I get while eating ice cream on the quad with my favorite colleagues, that will never override my amygdala kicking in when someone I don't trust starts talking. Incentives are not the answer. If you're trying to change your culture, forget the incentives 
and do the harder, more lasting work of changing the kind of conversations you're having. Learn to use conversations in ways that build trust by focusing on neurochemistry. Lisa Feldman Barrett says that emotions are guesses that your brain constructs in the moment. And she calls that being the architect of your own experience. You have the sensation, do you name it as nerves and go into flight? Or do you name it as excitement and come to slay? And that's exactly what Glazer wants you to do in conversations. Think about what's happening in your brain. Pause before you name it and build that story. And also recognize that that same thing is happening in the brains of the folks you're talking with. And this requires some empathy. So if you want to build trust with those people you're in conversation with, whether they're your cabinet, your direct reports, whether you're reporting up, you have to get to know those people or at least be in the process of getting to know them. You have to spend time with them. You have to learn what matters to them. You have to learn what they hope for, what motivates them, what triggers them. Because when you're in a conversation, the way they're responding to you The stories they are telling themselves as you are talking has a little bit to do with you, but has a lot to do with them. Your brain has habits and shortcuts and standby narratives. My brain had those habits and shortcuts in the story I told you about, the angry guy on the phone. The people you're talking to have the same habits and shortcuts. Building empathy for them and with them will go a long way in your work of using conversation to transform those fearful moments into trust. avoid giving bad news at work? Do you ever wonder what the heck to say in a conversation when the stakes are high and your nerves are churning? Or when you have something important to say, do you ever succumb to those inner gremlins when they whisper, hey, you, sit down, shut up? (laughs) I have been there too, and I am here to tell you, my friend, it does not have to be this way. Having confidence in your conversations at work is nothing more than a set of skills, and these are skills you can learn and practice and improve. And you can learn those skills in a new workshop called Conversations That Count. Conversations That Count is a five-part workshop where you will build the skills you need to communicate with clarity, confidence, and calm, no matter your message. The workshop is organized into five modules that introduce some of the neuroscience behind listening and curiosity, and then layers in some of the things that you care most about, your personal values, your professional goals, how you think of yourself as a leader, and all the ways you're working on building trusting, psychologically safe relationships at work with your colleagues. I am really excited to say that I'm leading this workshop with my longtime friend and conversational collaborator, Debbie Okerlund. Debbie has spent her career helping faculty as well as nonprofit leaders learn how to have really great conversations when the stakes are high. Debbie and I used to co-facilitate a workshop that we designed for new department chairs and program directors, and we've transformed that into this workshop with you in mind. It's designed for leaders at all levels, no matter your job title, the size of your team, or where you sit in the org chart. In addition to the five weekly modules, Debbie and I have added a VIP option because we want to give you even more personalized attention. So you can join us for additional small group coaching labs where we'll take deep dives into the issues you're facing and the challenges you want to solve. During our five weeks together, we will guide you step-by-step through the processes you can use to turn your important conversations at work into conversations that count. 
The workshop starts Tuesday, April 24th, and it runs for five weeks. You'll be learning communication skills alongside other folks who share the exact same struggles you do. And you'll have plenty of chances to network, to engage, and to support each other. Even more, participants will have lifetime access to the workshop, so you can return to the materials at any time to review lessons, to grab handouts, guides, and any of the other resources that are built into the workshop. Registration is open now. You can get all the workshop details and even learn more about Debbie and, of course, register over at the website. Head to theclariogroup.com forward slash conversations. We can't wait to see you there. Meanwhile, thank you so much for joining me for this week's episode of The Uplift, the podcast dedicated to elevating and amplifying women's leadership in higher education. Take a moment to follow. You can find me over on Apple Podcasts or Overcast or Spotify, wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also find all previous episodes with transcript, show notes, and links at my website, www.theclariogroup.com. And hey, I see you with your phone open. Come connect with me on social. You can follow the Clario Group on LinkedIn or Facebook. You can also just follow me and you'll see all the Clario Group content. And once you've followed, please drop me a DM to say hi. I'd like to know you're there. All right, that's it. I will see you next week, same time, same place, for the next episode of The Uplift. Bye for now. 